Thank you for downloading this Desenio podcast. For more information, visit DesenioDaily.com. We hope you enjoy the programme. Hello and welcome. Today we're going to talk about material research in design and material futures as well. Ways in which looking into development of new materials and ways we can use existing materials maybe a little bit more sensitively and thoughtfully. So first of all, I'm going to introduce our panel. To my left, we have Carol Colley, who's the Professor in Design for Sustainable Futures at Central St. Martins. Then have Caroline Till, co-founder of Franklin Till, Design and Research Studio. And then finally, on my far left, John Small, Director of Industrial Design at Steelcase. Um, so first of all, I think material is discussed a lot within design. We talk about truth to materials and the need to start from material and really place it at the forefront of a design practice. But quite often alongside that, we have very exciting material science research, uh, like graphene and so on. But some of those developments seem quite slow to percolate into mainstream design practice. So first of all, why perhaps is that? Is there a... Is there a not as strong a link between that material science and design as there needs to be? Why do they sometimes seem a little bit disconnected? Uh, I think it's a very, very good question, actually. But um, I would argue that actually it depends where you are in a design spectrum. You know, if you're in a, you know, in a student position, those are very much on the forefront of what uh, some of our students are looking at. Uh, we actually have currently a student looking to graphene and working with a lab on graphene. Um, because they have the time to research, they have the time to explore. But when you are working in industry, I think it's usually the issue is also how much time do you have to get into knowing a, a material, but also some materials, the graphene for instance, you still are trying to understand what graphene can do. So it's also difficult to know exactly how you can apply it. And how easy is it for students to actually engage with some of those materials? Because they're very new, there's no um, roadmap, if you like. There's nothing there to guide them. How, how easy is it for a design student to start working with those? And Caroline, maybe you have some thoughts on this as well, because you've got an educational background too. Um, I think it's um, sometimes relatively difficult for a student to get their hands on uh, perhaps you know, a really high performance material, um, because obviously there's an expense involved. So often it involves uh, forming a collaboration. But I think what students are really, what we're, what's so interesting that we're seeing at the moment is that designers and particularly at a student level actually they don't necessarily just want to work with an existing material or specify an existing material they want actually want to become the engineers of their own material and, and that's for a variety of reasons probably concerns about the sustainable agenda um, uh, and also uh, wanting to understand a process um, from, from the very beginning and, and looking at materials as the building blocks of design. So I think more what we're seeing is rather than students being kind of allured to, to using these, these sort of lauded high-performance emerging materials is actually to get down to a more amateur approach and sort of, you know, get, test them in their own kitchens, if you like. Um, and then I think, just to go back to your first question, I think there's something really interesting about the disconnection sometimes between the really exciting material uh, innovation and uh, work that we're seeing at you know, either niche designer level or student level and how that perhaps isn't often moving more into mainstream or isn't moving more into industry. And I think that's often because of issues relating to performance. Um, one of the best examples I think of is the conversations that we've been having with um, amazing designer Maurizio Montalti who has um, got a studio in Italy, Officina Corpus Goli, and he's really 
pushing to the nth degree uh, mycelium, fungus-based material, the idea that um, you, know, you can uh, biologically grow material rather than industry producing it. And obviously, then it, it can be in a sort of natural circular system. He um, had a relationship with, with BMW. Um, we've uh, had a panel discussion in Milan, actually, with the, the director of sustainability at BMW. And I think she had a very pragmatic approach that you know, we want to work with this material, but the real, you know, the the reality of the story is that a car, the materials within a car, has to perform at plus, uh, uh, you know, seventy degrees often, as well as minus twenty five degrees, and often these you know, sort of new material innovations aren't ready to to be able to perform at those levels. So I think it's always a balance between the 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 reality of the application and what the performance requirements are and how ready that these new materials are, are, are to perform at those levels john maybe this is something you could weigh in out because you have an industrial perspective on this how does that chime with your experience yes it does i i think we were just having a pre-conversation before and i was saying one of the things that happens is that um, designers get seduced by materials right and you fall in love with something you see something and you go how on earth can i i need to use this it's got to be something and i i think uh, sometimes you fall into a trap um, not really understanding um, what, what the implications are. I mean, if you take uh, something like um, carbon fibre, you know, and, and so people, oh, carbon fibre, it's fantastic, it's brilliant, and all the rest of it, and then you realise the consequences of uh, using that material and what it takes to actually allow it to become an industrial kind of product. So that's where the investment comes in. So the car industry invests, you know, this, this level of investment is really high when you start trying to apply it to a kind of uh, industrial process. And I think, I mean, these, these chairs that we're sitting in at the moment, I mean, it took eight years to get to this chair. And I think for a student or something like that, you know, to actually be able to invest in the research into a material, go through the industrial process, allow it to become usable inside an object. I mean, the journey is, you know, it's not easy, that journey. Is there anything that could be done to ease that passage a little bit? So, Curry, you oversee quite a lot of collaborations at Central St. Martins between industry and students. What are techniques to make that passage a little bit easier and to encourage that long-term development? Well, I, I think it, it is two ways to go about it. It's either you actually work with an actual uh, material lab, science lab, and that have developed a new interesting material, and you collaborate with them to really look at what could be the various <coughs> design applications. So I think the idea is to really look at, well, where could it be? And if it goes into you know, the automotive industry or it goes into architecture, then you start to develop the, the right partnerships for this. But I think what is important is that we need to really understand better that designers can make that bridge and can be the bridge between these new materials and potential industry and applications. And quite often the design role is undermined. Um, and quite often some of those labs go straight into, well, you know, we could make a you know, smart tie or whatever without actually involving the designers to really look at how we can translate the qualities of these materials into relevant functional applications. So I think for me what's missing is, is how we value the role of design in that translation from mm. science to industry. Yeah, and I, think, I think that's the point though, isn't it? It's like this, how, do you, how, does, how is that journey, uh, how does that journey manifest itself in such a way that the relevance of the material ends up into the relevance of the product as well? 
I mean, I remember I worked on a, um, a project for Multaney, and we were looking at various materials to actually allow the product to exist. And, you know, you tried aluminium, you tried cast, uh, injected plastic, you went through all these things, and not one of the materials was the right material. And your investigations then take you on, uh, which I think is a really in intriguing uh, sort of route, if you're, you're trying to find something that works, and you realise that all the ones that are common don't work, or they're too expensive or something like that. And eventually we ended up, you know, finding a, a lightweight uh, concrete material that really I had never been on a radar before. And sometimes when you start an investigation, it might be in one material, and you end up actually finding that there's a more appropriate material, you know, to work with. How does that process typically map out? Is it a lot of trial and error, sort of just cycling through, like, I, I don't know, Thomas Edison with his light bulb trying everything <laughs> under the sun? Or what's, what's the best way to approach that kind of material exploration? Are there any ways which seem more profitable than others? I, I suppose I can comment more from a, a student perspective again and um, from many of the designers that we've been speaking to in the, um, the compilation of the book that we've just released and uh, which is talking very much about the designer as the agent for change um, within the material sustainable agenda and I think the process that um, I and, and we as Carol and I used to work together at Central St Martins have always perpetuated within materiality is the idea of um, exploration through the hands so research through making so often you have a core a starting point or agenda, um, a, a point of exploration, but you don't actually know what you're intending to come out with or you don't know the intended application. You start with the, the area of interest, whether it be, I don't know, a waste stream or a, a, an emerging technology or an emerging material technology that you want to explore. And then through... Um, really getting to grips with it in, in uh, you know, the physical making way. You explore its capabilities and its potential, and then through, through exploring the breadth of that capabilities, you then say, right, there is actually a really interesting potential application here, 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 or here. Maybe something I want to add as well is that you're talking about a sort of problematic connection between material research and, and design. But I think it's nearly the other way around. I think if you look at the availability of materials we had 30 years ago, you know, when you had to start a design collection, design product, there's been a massive material explosion. So now as a designer, you have so many materials you could look into, research, you have online material archives that are accessible and free for everybody. Um, I know we have our material library at college, but you know, now this, the choice is so incredible that it's also how much time does a designer have to explore all these new materials that are now available, which 20 years ago you didn't have you know, 50 versions of concrete. So I think that's also, that is also, I mean, it's, it's both a positive and a negative in a way, because I think it's great to have these choices, but I think that takes more time to investigate them. And also it's how much information do you have in relation to the materials, because I think one of the biggest problems with like materials libraries, for example, is the method of categorization or is so leading. And also one of my biggest concerns is that we don't actually know enough about materials. We're not being educated from a very basic level, mm. both as consumers, but also as designers to be able to make practical choices. I think, you know, that plastic is one of the things that's been talked about, you know, hugely on a very mainstream level now. And I think it's really fascinating that people don't actually really know the, the very basic process or the very basic raw ingredients that go into to plastic and they don't know the process of transformation it's gone into. And therefore, it seems actually how can we make, uh, you know, 
pragmatic decisions about what material is appropriate and most importantly how can we make decisions about where the thing is going to go afterwards because I think that's one of the things that we don't talk about enough mm. in relation to materials is actually <coughs> and again Maurizio I always quote said it so beautifully everything must die um, but often we're not actually thinking about how our materials die why do you think there is that very narrow approach and lack of knowledge? Is that a disconnect from the making process and a sort of just uh, looking at the object in itself and not having that awareness of where it's come from and where it's going? Why, why is there that lack of focus? And, and what could be done to address that? I think, for me, it just comes from that uh, kind of very historical separation of science and the creative arts. You know, so if you go into a design or creative uh, curriculum, uh, it's quite separate to what you would learn in science. And, and I think um, in this country in particular, and when I studied textiles in Paris a long, long time ago, I studied physics, I studied uh, to understand color, for instance. So that was integrated in the curriculum. But quite often now, you know, the sort of scientific dimension is totally taught separately from the artistic curriculum. One of the strategies that's used in industry and in fashion in particular, and I won't name names, but I think it's a good strategy, is um, because, you know, design teams are extremely busy, have to work to very fast deadlines, and there's a real pace of design that's too quick, in my view. Um, but instead of just researching a huge amount of new materials for each collection, uh, there's a sort of parallel sort of kind of research. So, you know, it might be for six months we're going to really look at this, you know, aside from the actual day-to-day -day delivery. And that's how you slowly build the knowledge into the team as well. So having a sort of mini R&D sort of red line going throughout the, the work. Carolyn, how do you deal with that? Because you're obviously consulting with brands and trying to encourage that material approach. So how do you try and get that level of engagement and to persuade them of the values of in embarking on that kind of process? One of the things that's you know really coming on, on the horizon and very quickly is legislation in relation to um, uh, things being able to De deconstruct to actually um, looking at um, built-in obsolescence, and so that you know, if you can be ahead of of these legislative changes, obviously you're, that's that's going to be. But I think moreover, there's a, a and again something we were talking about that there's a thirst for you know innovative material, but also ha that has a win-win that has a, a you know the sustainable credentials has the the kind of feel-good factor to it. And the designer is often for to, to create seduction. The material has to be you know as beautiful, if not more beautiful. Um, and if it doesn't, if it's not, uh, you know, in, in terms of performance factors, if it's not, then there's no reason for doing it. But there is also now another layer of, of consumer pressure and an economic win, which I think, and again, there's another really interesting story about Unilever, and they've siphoned off, I think, 12 of their brands within their portfolio to be um, sustainable material leaders. And actually, those 12 brands in the last... Um, 16 months have been the highest performing um, in terms of the economy uh, across all of their portfolio. So I think if, if people are saying that there isn't, um, you know, an economic story to, to particularly sustainable material innovation, that's wrong now. Is there a sense in which a lot of it comes down to the narrative behind a product and that being something which is marketable as well because alongside sort of mater future materials there seems to be a lot of interest in revisiting materials from the past and production processes from the past where do you think that interest in past materials and past ways of doing things is coming from 
I think it's also looking for a sense of um, authenticity and uh, to, to embed it with a, you know, a historical narrative. Or and I think a lot of the time the realisation that we had a huge amount, you know, we've, we've had a huge amount of knowledge historically. So I think of, for example, the work of um, a Dutch designer, uh, Thomas Viley, who um, did an exploration into just the willow tree and found um, you could create, you know, 20 different types of materials in, in multiple different forms from liquids you know that effectively as a PVA to a resin based material and um, this tree was often the the uh, what was used before we synthetically created polymers and plastics so um, I think there is a sort of return to in, in the search for a you know perhaps a, a higher performing or more sustainable material. There is something that we touched on just earlier which was there's been a, not only a transformation in the investigation into materials, but there's also been a transformation in how things are produced. You know, so the, the technologies that are actually employed by industry now are giving a, a vehicle, if you like, for materials to be used in a different way. I know it's, it's like a, this is like a stupid thing, but um, so I was cycling in southern Italy and going through sort of like the olive groves and things like that. And you see these estates where they used to all have wrought iron gates and, you know, they were beautiful. They were all handmade wrought iron gates. And now all the gates are laser cut. And so as you're traveling through the countryside, you're, the evidence of a new technology and a new material, if you like, and a new technique is now evident as you're cycling through this countryside. And you're going, what was better? Was it better that they were wrought iron or were they better that they're all laser cut? And it's, only, it's a question of technology with the production rather than, because it's the same material, it's just that the, the, the actual technologies have changed to be able to produce these things in a different way. And I think the combination of material, the materiality and industrial process is where these things are now taking place. And I think your point about students investigating, you know, the, the, on the one hand, you, if you can do something by hand and yourself and it's very immediate and you think, okay, this is great because I can do it myself. And then to do that jump into how then does this material become uh, a, a ubiquitous material used for different things? Because then you're into industrial processes and, and then that's, it's a completely different sort of world. Do designers and consumers need more help in understanding this, and in particular in linking it to sustainability? Because as you mentioned, there are now so many materials, so many different processes it's actually very hard to work out whether something is sustainable or not, right? Everything has pros or cons, and you can argue it any which way it sometimes seems. Um, on an individual level, I, I think it's, it's we're bombarded with information about we should be doing this, we shouldn't be doing that, and, you know, and then there's a complete contradiction the next day. I always think about, like... Um, my background is textiles like Carol and I was thinking of the organic cotton conversation, you know, that in the sort of late 90s, it was all about, yeah, every, all cotton must go organic. And then you see, you know, farmers in India that couldn't feed their families for three years while they had to take their fields out of production while they were, you know, gaining organic credentials. And so there, you know, there's, this is the problem with the sustainable agenda that there is, you know, an implication further down the line. I think it's also not only the explosion of materials, but the whole issue of sustainability being so complex. I mean, you know, a material that might be sustainable sustainable for one company at some at some for one product in produced in one location may not be the right material for another company in another location so it's a very complex debate and i think what we often 
uh, forget is that actually a lot of designers are working in companies, they haven't had any training in terms of sustainability. So I think we all have a responsibility, not just at an educational level, but in industry. I think designers have to be trained on a yearly basis to see, well, look, this has happened, here's this cool material, but actually there's a problem with this one. Uh, look at this, this is much more interesting. We've done an LCA for this. The, the problem is the material world is, is very fluid. There's so many new materials happening all the time. There's more knowledge about each materials. So we can't expect to train designers and then off they go for their 30 years career and then knowing everything. They have to really update themselves all the time and that takes time, but that takes investment from companies to make sure this knowledge is accessible for their design teams. Is there in any way a tension between the fact on, on the one hand what we've had described is that this sophisticated use of material is understanding it always within a context and as you said one material may be good in one situation but not in another and understanding where it's come from and where it's going at the same time there's always tremendous excitement around new materials right everyone kind of loves it oh there's a new super material which has these properties and is going to make everything brilliant and solve all the problems so how do you kind of manage that on the one hand there's about this sort of relativistic approach and on the other the inevitable excitement surrounding something which will be a kind of golden ticket do you think there's a golden ticket? <laughs> <coughs> I don't think there's... Um, yeah, there's a tremendous amount of expectation, isn't there, because of uh, the way our society has moved. When you think of the industries that are really innovating, you, know, you look at the, the materials that are used in the aircraft industry or the materials that are used even, you know, if you're... Uh, you know, in NASA or something, and you're, you're actually going to be doing something which is so extraordinary that it requires an incredible amount of research into what those materials are, how they're going to last, how, they, how, they're going to un, how they're even going to respond to some of the conditions that they're placed under. So you get one sort of side of uh, the kind of science of materials which is going like on a trajectory that is far faster than the furniture industry is, per se. Then you get the other one, which is like something like the, uh, the, the, the mushrooms, right? And you've got, these, you've got these sort of worlds which probably very rarely come into contact with each other. And then occasionally something appears, you know, fi uh, carbon fiber. You know, carbon fiber came from one world and eventually ended up in another world. And I'm, I'm, I'm quite interested in this idea of you take the mushrooms. How can the mushrooms move? And even BMW saying, well, actually, the mushrooms are no good for us because they don't last, you know, 70 degrees to 25 degrees. Is there a way that the mushrooms could? And, you know, and you're saying, well, there are these materials that are around. And perhaps we don't even know what they can do. Um, unless they're challenged in some way or unless there's a, a modification in some way so that they can, you know, trickle down or go up. or And I, I don't know how you monitor, because coming back to your point about the, the diversity of materials, the things that are being created, the appropriateness of the materials, how do we capture that? And whether it's a golden ticket <laughs> or something, but... You know, how do these technologies connect so that a material used somewhere, let's say in medicine, where some of the plastics are absolutely incredible plastics, but they're so expensive and they're so specific for a task, you know, how do they then, you know, move their way so that you as a designer or something say, well, actually, this is the most appropriate material for this and that's what we're going to use. <clears throat> 
I have something to say you might not like. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was interesting. You talked about, you know, why there's so much hype around the new. I think it's because of the media. It's because of, you know, a lot of people are looking for what is the latest thing we could write about or talk about. Um, and that sustains this kind of continuous hype around the notion of newness. But actually, I'm staring at you. You know, so you're wearing cotton. We've got wool. We've got polyester. I mean, these are not new. And I think that there's a notion of what is new is exciting and it's interesting and it always a bit of hype around it. But actually, what is established for large-scale manufacturers is the supply chain. So there's a very complex levels of supply chain established. If you look at fashion, because I'm looking at what you're wearing, and and to, to totally change your your supply chain or to introduce a new supplier is not necessarily that straightforward, in terms of quantities, in terms of testing it, in terms of all the different standards. But if you look around this room, who's wearing something new? Nobody. And so I think there's a whole, there's around the big hype around, and there are some really cool new materials that have come out, like the Milo by uh, Boltzweig recently, and another um, mycelium material. So there's a lot of really cool stuff, but it's not produced in quantities large enough for actually to become mainstream yet, because it takes a few years before those new materials are upscaled. So there's a notion of upscaling, and is it possible to upscale some of those, those new materials? Um, sometimes there's brilliant new materials, but you don't have the entrepreneurship dimension. You don't have people investing in this to develop it to the quantity that's needed. Therefore, this material will go nowhere, because unless there's enough quantity, we can't actually work with it. Um, so I think the notion of newness sort of entertains the, the, the sense, oh, here's new and there's a whole hype around it. But actually the reality, we're not after the new, we're after what delivers. You've been listening to a Desenia podcast. For more podcasts, visit desenyadaily.com.